This is the Hebrew letter. Hey. What? Hey. Hey. H-E. Hey. The fifth letter. The Hebrew alphabet. Every verse in this passage, these eight verses, begins in the Hebrew with the letter hey. Let's stand together out of respect for the Word of God as we read. Read with me, if you would, beginning verse 33 down through verse uh, 40. Okay? Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall keep it unto the end. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Incline my heart unto thy testimonies, and not to covetousness. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity, and quicken thou me in thy way. Establish thy word unto thy servant, who is devoted to thy fear. Turn away my reproach, which I fear, for thy judgments are good. Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, thank you so much for your love for us. Dear Lord, thank you for your precious word. Help us to realize and to gain understanding this morning that your word is forever. It is firmly established in heaven, has been from eternity past through eternity future, and it ought to make a difference in our lives. Dear Lord, now bless the message this morning. Speak to our hearts through your word. Change hearts and change lives. And we'll be careful to give you all the praise and all the glory. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. God bless you. You may be seated. Psalm 119 is the psalm about the Word of God. Psalm 119 tells us in verse 89 that forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Forever. God's word does not change. I believe that we have in the King James Version the most accurate translation into the English language. The Word of God is infallible and inerrant. You say, what's that mean? It means it never makes a mistake. Always true. I watched the other evening, just for a few minutes, a uh, program on, I think it's the Discovery Channel, about the Bible. And heard these people, educated way beyond their intelligence, who were talking about the errors in the Word of God and the fact that the Word of God couldn't be true. And and they were trying to surprise us with things. Uh, One lady said, uh, well, the Bible says that Jesus had at least four brothers and two or more sisters, and and nobody knows that. And I'm thinking, everybody that reads the New Testament knew it. What do you mean nobody knew it? You didn't know it. But we knew it because the Bible says it. His brethren were standing out. Side with his sisters and his mother. Okay, so I mean that that pretty well breaks it down for us. And went on to say other things. The four four different records of the life of Christ, and none of them agree. Duh. 
Have you never been to a trial and heard four different people witness about a particular event? None of them ever agree either. Everybody sees it from a different perspective. That's just obvious. If two people tell the exact same story, I know they got together and planned it ahead of time. That's why when I was uh, teaching school and two kids got in trouble, I didn't question them together. No, you question one, and then you bring the other one in and question them. If the stories match, you know that's not what happened. (laughs) Okay. So, and it just went on and on. And uh, so after 10, 15 minutes, I just turned it off. I, I mean, wow. The, the design of the program was quite simple, to shake the faith of people who believe but don't know why they believe. And I think they were probably very successful in that. What a waste of time and money. John said he wrote his entire gospel not to record everything that Jesus did and not to record everything that Jesus said, but he said, I wrote these things that I've written that you might believe and that believing you might have life through his name. So he wrote for a specific purpose this morning in Sunday school. We talked about the fact that the whole book of John only covers about 20 days out of three and a half years. 20 days. Out of three and a half years, John gets to the bottom of his of his his gospel, and he writes, "Why, if we wrote down everything Jesus said and did, I don't think the whole world could contain all the books." Psalm one nineteen is talking about the Word of God. In this particular section, the fifth section of these twenty-two sections. He talks about consecration to the Word of God. Consecration. Last week we looked at Dallas. Dallas mentions the need for salvation. We looked at Gimel a couple weeks before. It deals with salvation, the need for salvation. But he gets to this fifth section, and he deals with the need for consecration. What's consecration? Well, another word for consecration is dedication. Okay? We sometimes talk, as, as Christians, we use words that the rest of the world really doesn't use, and we think everybody understands them, and sometimes they do, and sometimes they don't. But we talk about rededication. Well, rededication is simply dedication all over again. But dedication of your life, To Christ is the word consecration, where you give yourself to God. That's what rededication is. It's renewing that vow of dedication of your life to Christ. And he talks about that here in this passage. He he begins in, in the first verse, verse 33, and he says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I will keep it unto the end. It's a lifelong dedication. It is a lifelong consecration. It's not a one-time consecration, but it is a lifelong consecration. You say, what do you mean it's not a one-time consecration? Well, I remember as a teenager, I recognized in my heart and life that God wanted me 
Not for salvation. He wanted me for service. He wanted me to do something with my life to make a difference in this world. He wanted me to do something with my life that would bring glory and honor to him. And so I went to the altar and I knelt and I gave myself to God for whatever he wanted. You say, still works, doesn't it? Yeah, still does. However, when I was in college, I decided maybe there's some other things I'd like to do too. And so rather than say, okay, God, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, I said, God, I'm going to do what you want me to do after I do this and after I do this and after I do that. I know exactly what you're thinking. Well, how'd that work out for you, Brother Casey? It did not work out for me. It was a mess. And I learned not nearly quickly enough that when God places a call on your life and when you consecrate your life to God, you better stick with it. It is a lifelong consecration of yourself to God. Paul said it like this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your body a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Well, think about a living sacrifice is... In the Old Testament, when they had a sacrifice, they would take the lamb or the bullock or the goat and they would cut his throat and then they'd split him up the middle and take all the entrails out and then they would skin him out and they would bury the skin and the entrails and they would catch the blood in a bowl and pour it on the four corners of the altar and then they would take the animal and split it up, quarter it, and place it on the altar and roast it. Okay? That animal was not getting up. Okay. Kind of like when Jonathan goes deer hunting. I mean, he doesn't shoot at everything he sees, but everything he shoots at, poof, not getting up. A living sacrifice lays itself on the altar and stays there as a sacrifice to God. But there are times when the Living sacrifice thinks the price might be a little too high to pay. Or there's something more attractive out there than serving God, and they get up off of the altar, decide they're going to do what they want to do. So Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brother, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. There's nothing unreasonable about giving your life to God. He's promised to provide for you. He's promised to take care of you. He's promised that whatever you need, He will make sure you have it if you put Him first. The problem is we put us first and we expect God to take up the slack. And God doesn't work that way. He says, delight thyself also in the Lord, and I'll give you the desires of your heart. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things 
will be added unto you. What things? Well, what do you need? You need transportation? God will provide it. You need food? God will provide it. You need a job? God will provide it. You need rest? God will provide it. But in order for God to provide all the things that we need, there are some things we have to set aside that we don't need. Say, okay, Brother Casey, quit meddling and get back to preaching. No, no. I mean, how many of us actually need to watch four hours of TV a night? How many of us actually need soap operas? How many of us actually need rock and roll music? How many of us actually need to overeat? Not this boy. We have to set aside some things in order that we might offer ourselves a living sacrifice and in order that God might bless. It's a lifelong commitment. But in the second verse, we find, Make me to go in the path of thy commandments. Excuse me. Give me understanding. This is the second verse. Give me understanding, and I shall keep thy law. Yea, I shall observe it with my whole heart. So not only is it a lifelong, it is wholehearted commitment. It's a total surrender. Yieldedness. At the end of World War II, the last war we actually won, we didn't go to Germany and say, okay, we're ready to quit fighting if you guys will quit fighting. And, and as long as y'all leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. Well, the surrender we got from Germany and the surrender we got from Japan were both unconditional. That means we won, we're in charge. And we occupied Germany. And we occupied Japan. I'm not saying we did a good job. I'm just saying that we did it. It was an unconditional surrender. And that's what God wants from us. An unconditional surrender. God, you're God and I'm not. And I need you. You don't need me. I want to be yours. I am yielding myself wholeheartedly, every part of my being, to you. Now let me speak to you anecdotally. What's that mean? Let me tell you a story about what happened to me. Okay? I did that. I yielded myself wholeheartedly to God. And one day, the Holy Spirit is walking through my life, walking through the inner recesses of my heart and mind, and he sees an area that I had hung on to. I said I gave him everything. You know, this was, it was sin, yeah, but it wasn't a great big sin, and it, and it was my sin, my habit, my, my little thing, you know? And quite honestly, if I named it, y'all wouldn't go, because oh, it's not that big a deal. 
to you. See, how do you know, Brother Casey? Well, because most of y'all do it, too. <coughs> okay. But the Holy Spirit that day shined the light of the Word of God on it. And I saw what Jesus had to say about it. And I realized while it wasn't a big deal to me and it wasn't a big deal to anybody else, it was a big deal to God. In fact, it was one of the sins that nailed Jesus to his cross. And there wasn't any sense in saying I wasn't guilty. I didn't mean to. So I had to go back to the altar and offer myself afresh and anew a living sacrifice. I had to yield wholeheartedly to God again. And then I did something really, really smart. Okay? And, and I know I saw your eyes widen when I said that because it doesn't happen to me very often. Okay? I said, Lord, is there anything else? And he said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, there's this. And so I gave that to him. And I felt such freedom, such liberty, such joy. And I said, is there anything else? He said, well, yeah, this. And it went on for a couple of days. Until finally I said, Lord, is there anything else? He said, no, that's it. I now rule the entire kingdom of your heart. And I said, I'm yours. I'm yours. I made a lifelong commitment. I made a wholehearted commitment. And it was a joyful commitment. A joyful commitment. Verse 35. Make me to go in the path of thy commandments, for therein do I delight. Therein do I delight. I delight in doing the will of God. There is something about knowing that you have done what pleases God that just exceeds the joy that the world has to offer. I mean, it just, it's overwhelming. It's peace that passes understanding. It's almost incomprehensible joy knowing that you did something that God approved of. Something God had asked you to do. And you did it. And you know you didn't do it very well and you didn't do it by yourself. He ended up having to do most of the work. But but he let you get in on it. It is such a delight. I'll go ahead and tell you. I have been in the place where life was not a delight. I don't ever want to go back there. Especially now that I know how to live a joyful life. How to make a joyful commitment and live for God. Just go in the path of His commandments. And then, verse 36. Turn away mine eyes, excuse me, Incline my heart unto thy testimonies and not to covetousness. God, I want to know what you're doing in the world, not what I can get in the world. We sent uh, a bunch of little matchbox cars and 
bunch of little fruit roll-ups and fruit chews and that sort of thing to a lady who's principal of a school in Africa. And she took them down to the village. And the little kids started coming up to her. And some of them were hungry, obviously hungry. And she would give them these little fruit roll-ups and show them how to tear them open. And, and every once in a while she would pull out one of the matchbox cars and give it to one of the little kids. And I got to tell you, matchbox cars cost me a dollar a piece. Okay? It was worth a thousand dollars a piece to those kids when they got it. Okay? As a result of that, she is now able to share the gospel with them. And let them know that this is not a gift from Randy Casey or from Keith Heights Baptist Church. This is a gift from God to them. Woo! I mean, that's just cool. That is just wonderful. Three weeks ago, I went to High Ridge to a family where the husband got fired. The wife lost her job. The company closed. They have three little kids. Things were not going well at all. And I had a gift card from Walmart in my pocket. It wasn't great big, but it wasn't a little bitty either. I mean, I got three $10 gift cards somebody gave me. But this wasn't one of those. This was a $100 gift card. And I knocked on the door, and the people weren't home, and... They had something sitting on their front porch and that was covered, and so I just picked up the cover and slid it in there, pulled it back down, and then called somebody to call them and tell them that it was there. And two days later, I got a call from the person that I had called, not from the people, because I didn't necessarily want them to know who did it, but they said, oh, Brother Casey, oh, oh, they are so delighted. I mean, totally overjoyed. You have made their Christmas. And I thought, no, I didn't. It wasn't me. But I got to participate in it. You know? I got to participate in it. And oh, what a joy. And giving it to them kept me from taking that gift card and going to Walmart and say, okay, I would like one of these, and I would like one of these, and I want one of these, and I want one of these, and I'll take two of these, and... And then you get up to the checkout, and they got rows and rows of stuff that you just, you, I mean, you can't hardly live without. God, oh, man. Oh, and doesn't that look wonderful? And, oh, 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 oh i got to have one of those. You know? Nah. I already found out. I, I don't need anything. I don't have to have anything. In fact, I've begun giving away stuff. See? And when I give away, it's junk, I know. But the only difference between junk and stuff is junk's the stuff you keep. No, junk's the stuff you give away. Stuff is the junk you keep. And I've started dispersals, you know. Get rid of it now. It'll guard you from materialism. The Word of God will guard you from materialism. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Almost everybody here is familiar with this verse, but we don't read the we don't read the verses after this. I want to read them to you this morning. Proverbs three verses five through ten, six verses. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not under your unto thine own understanding. 
In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Be not wise in thine own eyes. Fear the Lord, and depart from evil. It should be health to thy navel, and marrow to thy bones. Honor the Lord with thy substance, that's stuff, and with the firstfruits of all thine increase. So shall thy barns be filled with plenty, and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. Plenty to eat, plenty to drink, because you have honored God with the firstfruits. And with the increase. Somebody asked me one time, Brother Casey, do you, should you tithe on gross or net? Well, I don't know. Which does God give you, gross or net? You say, well, let me make it easier for you. Which does the government tax you on, gross or net? <laughs> yeah, they think gross is what you made. So they get theirs off the top. In Las Vegas, that's called skimming. Give it off the top. It'll guard us from materialism if we just honor God. He goes on. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity and quicken thou me in thy way. Help me to live in your way. Turn away mine eyes from beholding vanity. That's egotism. That's egotism. One of the reasons we've got to have so much stuff is so that our neighbors will think, whoa, they sure are successful. Look what they got. My neighbors can't see what I've got. Say, why not, Luke Casey? Because I'm storing it up in heaven. They won't see it till they get there. If they get there, all of you, all, I hope, will get to see it. I trust you know Christ is your Savior. It'll keep us from egotism. It'll keep us from short-sightedness. Short-sightedness. You say, what do you mean? What, what are you talking about, short-sighted? Oh, retirement accounts. Okay? I don't think I'm going to live long enough to retire. Quite honestly, I think Jesus is coming back pretty soon. And I don't want to leave a bunch of money in the bank or in somebody's uh, portfolio for the Antichrist to use to promote his agenda. I, I, I just don't. I'd rather give it to missions now, knowing that God's going to take care of me until he comes or until I die, whichever comes first. You say, well, Brother Casey, that's just you. Well, it's not just me. It's me and David. And me and other people who believe the Word of God. Establish thy word unto thy servants who is devoted to thy fear. You see, this lifelong commitment, this wholehearted commitment, this joyful commitment that guards me from materialism and egotism and short-sightedness is a worthy commitment because God is God. 
and he is worthy to be feared. We used to sing the song, he's got the whole world in his hands. Well, he's got the whole universe in there, Isaiah says. He measures it from here to here. The whole universe. And he can do anything he wants to do. One of the big arguments of the agnostics today is, well, if he's, if he's a sovereign God, then how come he allows evil? Because he is a sovereign God, he chose to give us free will. And we get to choose whether we're going to do right or wrong. And we choose to do wrong most often. Because we like to think we're God. We're in charge of our lives. We can do what we want to do. We ought to be devoted to the fear of the Lord. This is not original with me, but I want you to hear it anyhow. The man who fears God need fear nothing else. The woman who fears God need fear nothing else. You fear God, you don't have to be afraid of anybody else. Verse 39. Turn away my reproach which I fear, for thy judgments are good. What do we fear? Well, if we don't fear God, then we fear being embarrassed. We fear people making fun of us. If we fear God, we don't have to fear anything else. Turn away my reproach, which I fear. As long as we tell the truth and obey God's law and live for Him, have this wholehearted commitment to Him, it doesn't matter what anybody else says about us. It doesn't matter what else happens. God is in control. David went down to see his brothers when, who were uh, camped on the valley of uh, Elah, camped up on the hillside, because there's a war going on. The war's been going on for a long time, just hadn't been any battles yet. And David takes some food down to their captain and to, to them, and he gets there, and everybody's scared. Because this nine-foot, six-inch-tall giant comes down off the hill on the other side and begins cursing the Israelites and cursing their God. And David said, y'all are just going to let him do that? He said, well, yeah, well, he was a kid. Sure he was a kid. But he's a kid who feared God. Same guy who wrote this. He fears God. He's not afraid of reproach because he fears God. And he walks down there and he looks around and he says, is there not a cause? This is God's battle. He goes down and picks up five smooth stones out of the creek bed and starts across the valley. And this giant looks down at him and says, I'm going to feed you to the birds. And David said, I didn't come to you in the name of the king of Israel. I'm not coming after you because I'm an Israelite. I'm coming after you in the name of the Lord. You cannot talk like that about my God. And he put a stone in that sling. 
and did this little hit that giant in the center of the forehead. Giants' foreheads have a weak spot. It's one of the one of the problems with giantism. Hit him right in the center of his forehead, caved in his forehead, knocked him out, ran up to him, pulled out his sword, chopped off his head, and picked his head up by the hair, and went back to the camp of the Israelites. Victorious. Why? Because he feared God. He didn't have to fear Goliath. It'll guard you from reproach. And finally, he says, Behold, I have longed after thy precepts. Quicken me in thy righteousness. To quicken means to make alive, right? Give me a life that's worth living. You want a life that's worth living? I'm not talking about a life that's comfortable. I'm talking about a life that's going to pay off for God. A life that He's going to bless. A life that He is going to reward. Make the Word of God the center of your existence. Read this book. Study this book. People say, but Brother Casey, I don't understand the Bible. So, first time I read the encyclopedia, I didn't understand it either. Mom and Dad got it for us when we were like six, seven years old. Maybe younger than that. First, we just looked at all the pictures. World Book Encyclopedia. They had pictures of almost every kind of bird in the world. And horses, all pictures of all different kinds of horses. We used to love going through this World Book Encyclopedia. Eventually, I learned to read, and I started reading. World Book Encyclopedia. The more I read, the more I understood. And then I came to the point in my life where I realized that this book has some things for in for me, and I started reading it. And I didn't understand it all, still don't. But every time I read it, I understand a little bit more. And this book will give you a life that is worth living. It's yours. It's offered to you by Almighty God Himself. A couple of things are required. Number one, that you trust Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. You just put your faith in Him and say, Jesus, I know you died for me. I know that God raised you from the dead. And I am trusting you to be my Savior, to forgive my sins and save me. You do that, and that'll be step one. Second thing, offer yourself as a living sacrifice. Consecrate yourself to God. Say, God, I give you my, my, I give you my all. All that I am, all that I hope to be is in your hands. I want my life to count for you. And then take.